Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, verses 29 to 40. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. of things we get started today. First and foremost, two errors. One, you saw right before the announcement, Van Coots had come up and whispered to me an announcement, which then whoop in one ear out the other. So, let me actually tell you, because this is really exciting. So, some of you have heard, not all of you have heard, after many years of waiting, this last Tuesday on July the 5th, something very exciting happened. So, finally, after all of this time, Emmeline McKay's adoption was formalized, and Rob and Esther were able to officially adopt Emmeline, and she is now officially adopted as part of their family. So we are so very excited for them, and we're going to be celebrating with them. So there are two ways that we're going to celebrate with them. First, next Sunday, we're actually going to have a child dedication service during the Sunday morning worship gathering. And so it will be a time of celebration when the McKays come forward and dedicate themselves to the raising of Emmeline. And we as a church family surround them and say that we, too, are dedicated to you and to seeing this young, this young woman grow up. Uh, well, she's not a young woman. This child grow up to become a young woman who loves and follows Jesus Christ. So, but before that, there's actually going to be a celebration. Next Saturday, 2.30 p.m., downstairs in the Fellowship Hall, there will be a celebration. And so, again, you're invited to come and join. It's going to be from about 2.30 to 4 next Saturday. And so, Ann Kutza McCafferty, who's right there, just read for us, is going to be organizing food. And so, if you're willing to help out with some food, some finger food, some munchies for the celebration, you can talk to Ann Kutza. She would love to talk to you. And if you have questions about the celebration itself, you can talk to Rob and to Esther. But we hope you're able to join us both next Saturday, 2.30 p.m. for the celebration, and next Sunday as we have this child dedication service during our morning worship gathering. So that's the first thing. Again, I was supposed to remind you of that. The second error is I clearly communicated poorly to Kevin because um, we cut off a few verses at the beginning of today's reading. So we are supposed to start at verse 26, because without starting at verse 26, we're missing some context to what we're going to be talking about today. So what I'm going to do for you as we get started is I'm just going to read for us verses 26 through 28 
which will lead us into verse 29. And so the passage starts, What then, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, then let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, then let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. And then it picks up where the reading does this morning. Let two or three prophets speak and the others weigh in as to what's said. That gives us the context for what we're going to be talking about today. Because, friends, harmony is beautiful. Harmony is beautiful. One of the things that I love being part of the worship team is hearing the harmonies. I love hearing these singers work out their harmonies, pull them together, and I love when we go a cappella because so many of you, you know harmony. And I listen to you sing together, and it's really cool standing up front because I hear all your voices come in here. And it's beautiful when together we're singing in harmony. There's many different parts in a harmony. But yet there's a unity in that everyone is singing together. The, the many together make a harmony. And, and as we sang, for a thousand tongues, or we don't quite have a thousand here today, for a hundred tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glory of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. All the tongues that gather to sing the praise of God should do so in harmony. No matter how many tongues there are, no matter what part they add, all the tongues in the church's gatherings should sing together harmoniously the great Redeemer's praise. And that's the point of what Ancutza read for us this morning. First Corinthians 14, Paul is writing and he says, you know what, when you gather together as the church, each one of you, every tongue is going to bring a different part. But all those parts, should be in harmony with one another to make a pleasing sound of praise to sing the glories of our God and King and of the triumphs of His grace. Now, last week we started our study through the first half of this chapter. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. If you're visiting with us or just tuned in online, we've been working our way through this letter, to the, this first letter to the Corinthians. And last week we studied the first half of chapter 14. This week we're in the second half of chapter 14. So in many ways, Paul laid out the principles in the first half, and the second half is about the practice. The principles and the practice. So, again, as we look to summarize last week's discussion about what Paul was talking about, we saw in chapter 14, he discussed spirit-empowered tongues. He talked about when the spirit manifests himself, what are ways that that happens in the gatherings of the church? And he talks specifically here about two things, speaking in tongues and prophecy. And just a, a quick review, in 1 Corinthians 14, this practice of speaking in tongues, it appears to have been some sort of spiritually empowered prayer language that, that did have meaning, but it wasn't a language that any human culture spoke or understood. Hence, Paul said, and we heard last week, 1 Corinthians 14, 2, for one who speaks in a tongue does speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. And as we saw last week, Paul said that while the practice of speaking in tongues was good, it was not good the way they were practicing it 
in the church in Corinth. Instead of building up the church, it was causing chaos and confusion and division in the church. Because Paul makes clear, he says, speaking in tongues should only be done in the gathering of the church if there's someone there to interpret what's being said. As he wrote in verse 5, he said, Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets. Why? So the church may be built up. So as we learned last week, tongues seems to have been some kind of a private prayer language that was used almost primarily privately, unless what was being said could be interpreted in the large group to benefit all who were there. Because Paul's point, as we saw last week throughout this chapter, is that all gifts, whatever those gifts are, however the Spirit manifests himself, it should be for the building up of the body, not in ways that cause division. And so we heard at least six times over the course of last week, let all things be done to build up the church. And the problem in Corinth is, tongues, they had a particular fascination with them. And the way they were being practiced wasn't building up the body. It was dividing the body. This gift was being exercised in a way that was doing more harm than help. And as such, Paul says tongues are good if they're practiced rightly because they build up the faith of the individual. But tongues, the way you're practicing them, Corinth, is not helpful. It's harmful. So, so Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and as we heard last week, he wrote in chapter, uh, chapter 14, verse 12, he said, So with you yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And repeatedly, we've heard him say, prophecy builds up the church. If you feel like you want the Spirit to empower your tongue to do something when you gather with God's people, pray that he gives you the gift, the ability to speak prophecy, not tongues. And what we did is we cleared up last week, for those of you that weren't here, we cleared up last week a common misunderstanding when we use this word prophecy. When we use the word prophecy, we tend to think of foretelling instead of forthtelling. We think of foretelling instead of forthtelling. Foretelling is to tell the future. Forthtelling is to speak into the present situation. And while the Old Testament does contain some foretelling some words about the future, things that were far off, things about a coming Messiah and his coming kingdom, the majority of prophecy, even in the Old Testament, was not foretelling, but forthtelling. It was spirit-inspired words spoken into the present situation. It was God revealing the truth of the situation and his will for the situation, usually meant to call his people to repentance. And Paul says prophecy in the church in Corinth was supposed to be exactly that type of forth-telling. Again, we saw in chapter 14, verse 3, words of prophecy are for upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. In verses 24 and 25, he said prophecies for convicting, calling to account, disclosing secrets. So it's not foretelling, telling the future. It's forth-telling. It's intelligible, spirit-empowered words that reveal the truth of the present situation and the will of the Lord in that situation, most specifically calling God's people to faithfulness. And Paul makes clear this type of forth-telling, this type of prophecy should be part of the regular gathering of the church. And now, if you missed last week, 
and you want to understand more and you want to get into all the minutia and the details, you can go to our church website and you can look up the sermons. You can find our sermons on iTunes or on Google Play. Uh, and you can listen to last week's sermon. But this week, like I said, we're moving from the first half where Paul lays out the principles and he's moving into the practice. From principles to practice here in today's passage. And it offers us this fascinating glimpse, this fascinating glimpse of, of worship gatherings in the early church. And we see that there were clearly some differences between their gatherings and a gathering like the one we're having right here and now. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, which I read for us, What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So, so the first thing that we note is that the, the worship gatherings in Corinth were far more participatory than ours often are. When you come together, each one has. I mean, in many ways, they were far more like one of our small group meetings or even like the home group meetings that we're hoping to start back up again. Each one came with a word to contribute to the worship. And Paul declares, let everything be done for the building up. But that was exactly the problem in Corinth. Everything was being done, but it wasn't building up. Because there were tongues sounding, but those tongues were not in harmony. They were causing harm. The, the, the tongues were not being exercised in any of the manifestations with care, and it was causing chaos. So Paul's message is, whether there are 10 or 10,000 tongues, those tongues should all be in harmony. Let them sing together our great Redeemer's praise. Because each one brings something, and all those things need to be done together in harmony for the building up of the body. And, and Paul gives us this list, a, a representative list of, of five different words that persons might contribute to the gathered worship. The, the first word here is hymn. Uh, translated as hymn, the Greek word is psalmos, which is psalm. Because the psalms were songs of praise that were sung not only in the Jewish synagogues, but in the early gatherings of the church. The psalms were hymns and songs of praise that were regularly sung out when the church gathered together. And in fact, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, in hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So, one of the first exercises of being filled by the Spirit was to sing. One of the first manifestations of being filled by the Spirit, be filled by the Spirit, and what started addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? The Spirit-filled heart. The Spirit-empowered tongue is a tongue of praise. One of the first evidences of the Spirit's work is song, is music, is worship, is singing the glories of our God and King, the triumphs of His grace. And Paul says, when you come together, if the Spirit moves you to sing, you sing. And then he goes on and he says a lesson, which is didache, or a teaching, and it's the word that was used for formal instruction. Something that the teacher had learned, had been handed on to him or her, then turned and handed on to someone else. 
And when we gather, there are things that we've been taught that need to be handed on. Those things, those traditions, those creeds, those truths that have been given now need to be handed on. And when you gather, maybe you bring that and the Spirit gives you the power and the courage to stand up and to speak that. The third word is revelation, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. Because I want to look at the fourth and fifth words to start. Because the fourth and fifth words he lists are tongues and interpretation. Now, now Paul gives specific instructions for tongues and interpretation in the gatherings of the church. Look at 27 and 28 again. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So, first, notice in verse 27, Paul puts a maximum on the number of tongue speakers in the gathering. But in verse 29, he actually sets a minimum for the number of prophecies that can be spoken. Because tongues in the gathering, he says, should be discouraged, but prophecy should be encouraged. Why? Because prophecy is a gift for the gathered church, for the speaking of God's word, for the understanding of his will, whereas tongues was primarily practiced in private. Paul says tongues is only permissible if there's an interpreter. Otherwise, the speaker should remain silent. And I can tell you the number of times that I've been in a worship gathering where I've heard the use of tongues, I've never seen it practiced, as 1 Corinthians 14 clearly here commands. That if it is practiced, there should be an interpreter. And that's not to say that it cannot be. However, it is to say that, friends, each and every good gift of God needs to be exercised according to God's clear command, because otherwise it's not being exercised for the building up of the body. Paul makes clear it should not be done. And as Paul says here, the speaker should then keep silent. Now, back to the third word that he lists. He says the third thing that your tongue might bring is a revelation. And the word here is apocalypsis, which is where we get our word apocalypse. Friends, apocalypse literally means a revealing, a, a pulling back the curtain. Something that was previously unknown or uncertain is made clear. And friends, that largely is what prophecy is. Prophecy is largely the Lord revealing the truth of a situation or revealing His will in an uncertain situation. You know, whereas teaching, teaching might say, hey, look here, the Lord has clearly revealed this through His Word. That's what I'm doing here. This is what the Bible says. God's revealed it. It's clear. I'm teaching you. Or, or, or a teacher might say, look here at the accumulated wisdom or tradition that we have been handed down from God's people. Look at that. It's something that's already revealed, already known, just making it clear and fully understood. But prophecy is to reveal the unclear, the uncertain, or the unseen. I mean, for example, the book of Revelation is called an apocalypse. It's a revealing. And I understand the revelation of John, the final book in our Bible, to largely be a revealing of an unseen reality. When we consider the context that John wrote the last book of our Bible, Revelation, in, the church in John's day was under persecution by powerful forces. They felt weak. They felt overwhelmed. They questioned whether they could or would endure. They were fearful. Maybe the darkness is just too great. And into that, God revealed the truth of what was really happening. He, he pulls back the curtain on human history 
in the book of Revelation to let them see what's going on behind the scenes. You know, some of you remember that classic scene in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy's little dog Toto exposes that the floating head that everyone thinks is the wizard is actually just an illusion created by a middle-aged man hiding behind the curtain. And when he's exposed, what does he do? He yells, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. But I believe apocalypse or revelation is the opposite. Apocalypse is pay attention to what's going on behind the curtain. Because this is really who's pulling the strings. This is really what's happening. No matter what you see on the surface, let me show you what's going on. I'm pulling back the curtain. And that's the message of Revelation. And that is a prophetic message. It's a revealing of the truth. This is really what's happening here. Why? So that then God's people can respond rightly. So that God's people might repent of their sin. So that God's people, like in John's Revelation, might not be afraid. Because they might see behind the curtain of human history and understand what's really happening and that God is truly sovereign and that in the end, God wins for Christ has won, for God has won, Christ prevailed, as we sang this morning. That's prophetic. In the Old Testament, we see this time and time again. It's a revealing of what's really going on for the purpose of calling people to repentance. For example, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7, the Lord tells Jeremiah, he goes, Jeremiah, stand at the entrance to the temple and declare to everyone who comes into the temple to worship. And he says, Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 9. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. You see, on the surface, all the worshipers looked really good. On the surface, to what you saw on that side of the curtain, it looked good. The worshipers were going to temple. They were offering sacrifices. They were speaking the right prayers. They were saying the right words. But through the prophet Jeremiah, God pulls back the curtain. He goes, I see what's going on behind the curtain, and I'm going to show everyone. You may be showing up here and worshiping me on the Sabbath, but you leave here, and you're walking away from me, and you're rebelling against me. God reveals what's unseen to others, and by this prophecy, what's he doing? He's exposing and calling his people to faithfulness. He's calling them to faithfulness because prophecy is often a revelation of the Lord, a revealing of the truth of a situation to give clarity, uh, to reveal from the Lord about an unclear situation or decision. Again, this isn't foretelling. It's not predicting the future. It's foretelling. It's speaking words about and into the present situation. And Paul throughout 1 Corinthians 14, actually encourages this type of activity in the gathered life of the church. Now, we noted last week, and it bears repeating, that prophecy in the New Testament doesn't have the same divine authority and infallibility of Old Testament prophecy. In fact, Ancruza read for us in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. 
So, so a prophecy that was spoken had to be weighed and considered by the gathered community to determine its accuracy. And as we mentioned last week, Paul also commanded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So prophecy should not be despised, but it must be weighed and tested. So why would the gathered body of the church weigh and test the reported revelation of the Lord? Because, friends, there's an important principle here. If God is speaking, He's not only speaking to me. He's speaking to us. We are His people. So together, the community should weigh a potential message from the Lord. Now, is that to say that if it's from the Lord, we're always going to be unanimously in agreement? Well, unfortunately, no. There are many reasons why someone might willfully or unknowingly misunderstand or resist the Lord's revelation, but we still need community because, friends, there's greater safety in community because community protects us against sin's deception and distortion when the same word is confirmed by multiple members of the community. Again, it's not to say that the majority is always correct, but friends, prophecy does not belong to an individual. It belongs to God's people, to the community. So it should be tested and weighed by the community because it's a word often for the community. And even more importantly, as we discussed last week, with all, all words of prophecy must always be in agreement with and ultimately in submission to the apostolic teaching. We heard last week, and we read again this weekend, Kutzer read for us, 1 Corinthians 14.37. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. So Paul says here, prophets and prophecy must acknowledge and submit to my words because they're the command of the Lord. And friends, Paul can say that because he is an apostle of Jesus. From amongst all of his disciples, Jesus called and gave authority to 12 apostles, and then he called and gave Paul a special apostolic call on the road to Damascus. The apostles were given a unique calling and a spirit gifting, and here Paul declares prophets and prophecies must acknowledge and submit to the authority of the apostles and their words, like my words, because my words are the very command of God. And if they refuse to do so, verse 38, Paul says, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. He or she is not a false prophet. Friends, our New Testament, our scripture is a recording of the Spirit-inspired, divinely authoritative teaching, preaching, and writing of the apostles. So any prophecy spoken today to be recognized would have to acknowledge and submit to the apostolic, the scriptural authority. Because what we have in Scripture is God's authoritative word. And church, this is vitally, vitally important for us to understand today. Because there are some persons and churches that hang banners and post statements declaring God is still speaking. And yes, friends, God is still speaking today. 
However, God will not speak today something that denies what He's already spoken through the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles. God does not lie. God does not change. God will not deny what is already spoken, and He does not fail to fulfill any of His words. So, church, if any so-called prophet arises and says, God is still speaking today, and then speaks something that denies what He's already spoken, that person is a false prophet and either damnably mistaken or a hell-bent liar. The Lord is an unchanging God. He cannot deny Himself speaking today that which would contradict what He's already spoken through His Word and make it thus somehow untrue. Every word, every prophecy, every tongue must acknowledge and submit to the authority and infallibility of God's Word. Only then will we harmoniously declare together the glories of our God and King and the triumphs of His unchanging grace. Now notice that after calling the church to test every prophecy, which we must do, Paul writes that there is to be order in the worship gatherings. Look at verse 30. If a revelation is made to another who's sitting there, let the first be silent. Uh, Again, if one's prophesying and, and someone else receives a word, let the first one sit down and let the other one speak. Uh, Again, there's the word revelation, like we were talking about a little bit earlier. And Paul instructs, if one's speaking, then let the other sit down. Let there be harmony. And verses 30 through 33 make abundantly clear that this type of prophetic speech is not ecstatic speech. You know, I think we have a misunderstanding when it comes to this idea of prophecy, that it's, it's some kind of ecstatic speech. Like you go into a trance and you have this mystic experience of self transcendence. But Paul says, no, the speaker is in his or her right mind, is fully in control of his or her faculties. And if the Spirit reveals a word to someone else, then you can control yourself and sit down. You can wait your turn. You don't need to speak over each other. You're still in control. Paul says things in Corinth have gotten out of control. Because what's happening? Well, people are probably standing up going, I can't help myself. The Spirit of the Lord's upon me. Am I starting to crackle again? Like last week, uh, we'll figure out what that is. So Paul's point is he says, if somebody in Corinth or anywhere is coming up and going, I can't control myself. I, the Spirit of the Lord's calling me. He says, that's nonsense. And in fact, we still hear that nonsense from places today. But yet, Paul also wrote for us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul says the fruit, the outworking of the Spirit in you, is going to include self-control. And so, if you're there saying, I'm out of control, I can't control it, That's not the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of self-control. So if one is prophesying and another word comes, you can take turns. Don't speak over each other. Don't cause chaos. Because clearly, the church in Corinth and their gatherings were chaotic. And he says, no. No, that does more harm when what you need is harmony. And harmony requires that you take self-control by the power of the Spirit and do things in order. 
And Paul gives further instructions to encourage harmony in verses 33 through 35. Again, for God's not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. But if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Well, that seems clear to me, so let's move on to the next section. So, no, no, you can ask at home. Hold on. Sorry, that was my, that was my wife. Seriously, what do we do with these instructions? You know, in my studies, I found one pastor who said that amongst his commentaries and books and articles, he found no less than ten different ways trying to understand these words. So what do we do with them? Because I believe there is a correct way to understand them. So our goal is to understand, well, what did Paul mean? So let's begin with context, which is always the way we should start. Look at the context. Well, first thing we notice is that this call to keep silence can't be an absolute command. The exact same word for silence and the exact same command to silence is used in verse 28 for tongue speakers and used in verse 30 for prophesying. And neither of those commands are absolute commands. It wasn't an unyielding silence, rather a silence when silence was appropriate. And moreover, in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, Paul spent 15 verses, 15 verses talking about what a woman should wear on her head when she prayed or prophesied in the gatherings of the church. So he clearly didn't expect women to be absolutely, completely silent in the gatherings of the church. Now, in my studies here, these are what I believe are the best two understandings of the word. First, there are many who look at the immediate context of this prohibition, and some believe that what Paul was specifically prohibiting here was the weighing and testing of prophecies, that women weren't supposed to be part of the weighing and testing of spoken prophecies in the church gatherings. Instead, that responsibility was being reserved for the leadership of the male elders who were charged with protecting the doctrine of the church. So that's one view, but I think an even better understanding of these words. An even better understanding comes from the fact that three chapters ago, like I just mentioned, 1 Corinthians 11, we saw that some wives in Corinth were not showing proper submission by not wearing head coverings when they prayed and prophesied in the church gatherings. As such, they were causing shame on themselves and their husbands. And in the same way, here in chapter 14, we find that some wives in Corinth are not offering proper submission to their husbands, probably interrupting and asking inappropriate questions as their husbands prophesied or participated in the church gatherings, and thus were bringing shame on themselves and their husbands. So Paul's message is, show proper respect in the gatherings. Stop distracting others. Sort out your questions and your issues at home. And this lines up with Paul's overall thrust in chapter 14, that the gatherings in the church, the whole point was to build up, not to distract. And so that would fit in Paul's flow where he says, tongue speaking that's causing distraction, that needs to be silenced. Prophecy, speaking over one another, out of control, that needs to be silenced. 
And if there are any contentious relationships between husbands and wives that are causing distraction in the gathered worship of the church, that should be silenced too. Deal with that at home. Because that way, all 10 or 10,000 tongues can sing together in harmony without distraction their great Redeemer's praise. So whatever Paul's words mean here, his concern is clear. His concern is that the church in Corinth, in its gatherings, be built up and not torn apart by any type of distraction. And Paul closes this section in typical Pauline fashion. He summarizes this long, complex, drawn-out argument in like two sentences. Verses 39 and 40. So my brothers and sisters earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. And as I mentioned last week, I believe these are words not just for Corinth, but for Camden and for the church today. So how do we apply them? So here's a couple of thoughts. You know, first, I want us to note just how many times Paul tells us here to desire or strive after particular gifts. This is different from the way we usually think about gifts. Here in verse 39, he says, earnestly desire. If we go back a few verses, chapter 14, verse 12, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in ones that build up the church. The very beginning of this chapter, chapter 14, verse 1, earnestly desire the spiritual gift, especially that you may prophesy. And back in chapter 12, verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. You know, we, we tend to treat manifestations of the Spirit as if they're like getting a superhero power over which you had no control. Like, oh, oh, you accidentally got bit by a spider and now you have spider powers? Cool. I was accidentally exposed to gamma radiation and now I get green and strong. But we have no control over it. It was just hap- happenstance what superpower you got. But Paul here, he says to the church multiple times, desire strive after particular manifestations of the Spirit. And in fact, his message is, don't strive after the ones that are spectacular, that that draw attention to you. If you want to desire something, if you want to see the Spirit move in and through you, let it be something that builds up the church. So church, desire, strive after those gifts that will make you most useful to the Lord and to the church. And to that end, Paul says, repeatedly, desire to prophesy. And so the second thing I want to note is this word prophesy throughout this chapter is a verb. Desire to prophesy. The prayer is not make me a prophet, because we often think, well, only prophets can prophesy. The prayer is desire to prophesy. Because as I said, when we studied chapter 12, most of the gifts or the manifestations of the Spirit are not necessarily enduring gifts, but situational. It's God's Spirit giving us what we need when we need it. Or God's Spirit taking a natural ability and giving it a spiritual power, all for the accomplishment of Christ's purposes in the situation. And Paul says, earnestly desire to prophesy. So, so church, we might pray, Spirit, I'm willing. If through me you want to reveal your word or wisdom for this situation or for that person, I desire to be useful to the building up of your body in whatever way you might use me. 
I mean, it could be prophecy, it could be helps, other gifts, administration, healings, miracles, teaching. Spirit, empower me to be useful to you for the building up of your church, whatever that looks like. And, and even saying that, some of you are feeling uncomfortable because of the dangers of abuse. Many people get nervous when we start talking about being open to manifestations of the Spirit. And Corinthians is evidence number one of abuse of the spiritual gifts. We see them misused. We see them abused. We see them cause chaos. However, as we said last week, friends, abuse does not justify disuse. It calls us to right use. Fear of abuses can cause us to avoid altogether desiring, praying for, seeking after, or practicing manifestations of the Spirit. However, here and throughout the New Testament, we see that the Spirit's work, when it's rightly practiced, is good and it's desirable for the building up of the body and the advancement of the gospel. And so Paul concludes, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But saying that, friends, all prophecies and gifts should be submissive to the word of God. All of them should point us to Christ. All should be weighed by the church and practiced for the common good. All the gifts should be exercised with humility, with transparency, with accountability, and as we saw in chapter 13, with love. Or as Paul concludes in the final verse, verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. Because friends, only when all things are done in such a manner, in such a heart, done for and with love, only then and only, only then will every tongue, whether ten or ten thousand tongues, sing together in harmony our great Redeemer's praise, declaring together for all the world to hear the glories of our God and King and the triumphs of His grace. So church, by the power of His Spirit, what part is He calling you to sing? And let's pray. Father, give us wisdom in this matter. But even greater, give us love. Give us love that all that we do might be done in love for the building up of your body, for the advancement of your kingdom, for the glory of your name. Lead us and guide us. And Father, here we are. Use us that the world might know and might see Jesus Christ high and lifted up. Jesus, who is Savior of all, as we sang, Lord of heaven and earth. May he be known and glorified in and through us, we pray. Amen.